Let me start out by uh, praising God. Yesterday I celebrated my 11th wedding anniversary, and uh, I cannot be more thankful for the wife and the family that God has blessed me with uh, these past 11 years. It is way beyond what I ever deserved. And uh, I always remember Tom several years ago getting up and publicly thanking God for his wife. And so uh, following your lead and, and, and godly example there, Tom, thank you. But uh, I'm so thankful for, for my wife. Um, and uh, just amazing what God has done for us uh, these last 11 years. Pray that he will continue to keep us together and be a good testimony to him and to our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, this morning, as we look at Habakkuk, I want to just quickly go back to last week where we left off. And we were looking at uh, Habakkuk 2, chap- uh, verses 1 through 4 primarily. And I spent a lot of time talking about uh, the idea of justification by faith. And now, I realize uh, that this specific uh, portion here is not really about justification by faith, but rather it's more about living by faith. But I, I took that little side sidelight or sidestep to emphasize justification by faith, because if you're not justified by faith, you can't live by faith. And uh, if we don't know what it means to be made righteous by God through faith, um, it's hard to to live righteously by faith. And so I took that little sidestep for that important reason. Because until we really know what it means to be justified by faith, we have, I think, a hard time living by faith. And I spent a few minutes talking about what faith looked like. And let me just remind you uh, of some of the things uh, that we, we looked at from, from Calvin and his description of faith. Um, he said that uh, true faith uh, is a faith or trust in God that gives up all of the defenses or the, the devices uh, that are guaranteed to disappoint us in this world. Faith strips us of all arrogance and leads us naked and needy to God uh, that we may seek salvation from Him alone. This type of faith sets man before God emptied of all good things so that we seek from God. Uh, what we need from his gratuitous goodness. Uh, it is this kind of faith, faith that justifies us before God. And it's important to understand that because that is also the very same type of faith of which enables us to live day by day. We always come to God with nothing good in ourselves. If, if we're trying to live and obey God, as, as Dima exhorted us today, if we're trying to do that in our own strength, that's not faith. That's living in our own strength by the power of our own flesh. And Paul tells us that is sinful. And so, in order to live by faith, we need to know what faith is. The other reason I took that little sidestep is because the rest of chapter 2 talks about woes uh, and warnings to those who are not living by faith. And the only way that we can have victory over sin is to have those sins first paid for by Jesus Christ. And that comes through faith and His finished work on the cross. 
And until we have that settled, we will have no victory over sin. John Owen says you can't have victory over sin that has not first been paid for by Jesus Christ. And so until that foundation is set, I don't think we can properly understand what it means to live by faith. And so that's where we were last week, and I took some time with that for those reasons. Now, as I said, the rest of chapter 2 here is full of five woes uh, of coming judgment upon the Babylonians. Now, you can do one of two things with this text. You can look at it and kind of be self-righteous, pointing the finger, saying, yeah, they really deserved it. They deserve what they're getting. And they do. And God is clear about that throughout this uh, passage. That he, has, he tells them over and over again, this judgment is coming because of what you have done. And it's an encouragement to the faithful remnant, to Habakkuk and others, that God is going to deal with sin. He is going to judge it. But what I like to do a lot of times when I come to this a passage of Scripture like this is I also want to look at my own life and see where, where, where do I measure up? How do I measure up according to God's Word? Am I really living by faith? Or are there some areas in my life which need a little fine-tuning? And so what I've done, if you were following along with Charlie as he was reading, and if you've read this passage this week, you might look at these woes in Habakkuk, and you might excuse yourself, because you'll say, I don't shed any blood. I'm not a violent person. I'm not uh, devastating the beasts of Lebanon and terrifying people. Uh, you know, I don't get evil gain from my house. Uh, I don't build a city with bloodshed. I don't do those types of things, so I'm exempt from what is being taught here. And as I looked at this passage, I was thinking, what, what are the principles, though, that are embedded in the imagery of Habakkuk? And I would agree, for the most part, most of us here are not involved in violent takeovers and overthrows of countries like Babylon was. But are there principles here in which maybe we do violate? And I was thinking about what Jesus says to the Pharisees. They said, we don't commit adultery. We don't murder. But he says, if you hate your brother, you've committed murder. If you've lusted after another woman, you've committed adultery. So this idea of we might not have committed the same physical acts that the Babylonians are doing, but maybe we are violating the principle at the root of those acts. And so let's look at a few of these. In verses 6 through 8, we have our first woe. Woe to him who increases what is not his. 
Increases what is not his, I think, is what I centered on. What is a principle there? If I am taking something that is not mine and I'm increasing it, I'm taking it from somebody else. I'm, in a sense, victimizing another person. I'm taking from them what is theirs and making it mine for my own personal gain. Do we do things like that? Do I steal time from my employers who are sitting here this morning for my own personal gain? Most of the time, yes. I do confess, surfing on the Internet a time or two, while I'm under their... uh, under their uh, supervision and where I'm supposed to be working for them. We do that. I was thinking as a parent, one of the things I've learned as a parent is that my time is no longer my own. Especially when you have four little ones. My responsibilities have changed. God has blessed me with those children. He says, now your responsibility is to raise them. There are things that I can't do anymore. I have to give up some of the things that I would like to do and engage in. I'd love to play more golf with Joe. I'd love to take a fishing trip with Dan Williams. But those are things I have to set aside because I have other responsibilities now. What are some of the things that maybe you struggle with, that you would love to do, but, or maybe you do do them at the expense of your children. What about the church? Bob did a series not too long ago on spiritual gifts. Every believer is, in, is endued with gifts, and they have a responsibility to use them to serve this body and to serve our Savior. Are you robbing us? Are you taking what you're supposed to be serving us with and using it on yourself? Selfishness is at the root of a lot of these woes. Serving ourself. The contrast is living by faith is just the opposite. I don't seek to serve myself any longer. I seek to serve God through serving one another. And it struck me this morning as Dima was talking about how people's reactions would change to him coming to the orphanage when they would bring practical expressions of love for the children. And you hear this over and over and over again in a variety of settings. People are hostile to the gospel But when they see it practically lived out, they begin to soften. And it really struck me that this is, I think, at the heart of living by faith. It's living in a way that expresses God's love. And that's what is at the heart of these woes. It's living selfishly versus living lovingly for others. Verses 9 through 11. 
I've titled this little section, Security in Finances or Faith? Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to put his nest on high, to be delivered from the hand of calamity. Evil gain. It's not just cheating on your taxes or stealing from your company's till to get ahead. The idea here is, is greed in all of its forms. However you are getting gain greedily, selfishly for yourself. That's the root here. For why? Why, why do we try to do this? And I think this hits so close to home today, and this is such a tough one to deal with for our situation. Because we live in an affluent culture here in North Dallas. And notice the verse doesn't say, woe to him who gets gain. Who gets evil gain. Because God blesses us, and I'm not begrudging that at all. But don't do what this verse says with your gain. And look to that gain. Don't look to your finances. Don't look to your health insurance as your security. Look to God for all of that. I thought a lot about Bob Quinn this week. All the money in the world doesn't keep his arteries from getting clogged. (laughs) You know? All the money in the world doesn't preserve our life. All the money in the world doesn't guarantee you won't get cancer. No one has been able to buy their way out of death. It's coming. But we try and we try to do everything that we can to prolong our life, to avoid the inevitable. And that's not bad. But don't trust in that. Don't trust in that. Jesus has a lot to say about building up treasures in heaven versus building up treasures on earth. Be rich towards God. Fear the one who can harm not only your body, but your soul. That's where we need to put our trust. in the one who determines where it happens to our soul for eternity. Not who can damage my body now and harm me now. And again, it's easy to say these things when we're not in harm's way. And this is the time to learn these truths, to trust in God now before the calamity comes. It's much harder for our brothers and sisters in Cedar Rapids that Pete mentioned this morning, who have lost everything. It's hard to learn the lessons then. It's hard for Jeremy he hadn't learned the lesson before he left for Iraq. And it was interesting. I was going to pray for him. Pete, let me give a quick update. I was talking to Mary Lynn. She said he had a first great Bible study. The next morning, he broke out in hives. His whole right side of the body was swollen. His hand swelled up two times the size, his foot. And uh, he's been in the hospital for the last several days trying to get this under control. But yet he's had opportunity to... Witness to two Iraqis in that hospital, one of whom has asked for a Bible already. 
I think Jeremy knows that God is in control. That's who he turns to for his security over there in the midst of a war zone. Verses 12 through 14. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town on violence. No one's doing that this morning. We've got two builders here. I know they don't conduct their business that way. They don't shed people's blood. They're not violent. What is the principle here? Are we not all building something? We're all building, in a sense, a legacy. Now, I was thinking about fathers today, because it's Father's Day. Men, what kind of legacy, what kind of town are you building for your family and for your children? Is it one that is exasperating your children, making them angry? Or are you teaching your children with love and gentleness, correcting them, teaching them the truth of God's Word? Men, are we modeling for our sons what it is like to love our wives in an understanding way? Are we teaching them, are we teaching our children how to care for other people, how to love them the way Jesus has commanded us to? Or are we spending so much time with video games and activities that we don't have time to teach them how to grow up to be men and women of God? What kind of legacies are we building? We are all going to build. It's how we will build. And look what he says here. Verse 14, a promise. For all the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. As the waters cover the sea. Are we teaching our children, are we building a spiritual legacy that this is what they long for? The time when they will see the glory of the Lord known in all of the earth? Is that what we are building into our children? Is that what we are building as a church? Are we hard after the fact that the glory of God is what we're all about? Is that what we're taking to the nations around us and saying, this is our legacy? Not us, not the individual workers, but the glory of God. That's what we long for. Verses 15 through 17. Woe to you who make your neighbors drink, who mix in your venom, even to make them drunk so as to look on their nakedness. A very graphic picture of what was going on, of what the Babylonians were doing. 
We've heard about this many times. Nowadays, there's all kinds of new potions for men to do this to women. And I don't think anyone here is doing that this morning. I hope not. I pray not. But do we take advantage of others? Do we expose them to shame and humiliation? And do we encourage others to engage in these practices with us? That's what he says. It wasn't just Babylon doing this, but they brought their neighbors in to engage in this with them. And what did they do? They have this picture of exposing and shaming, humiliating. And what God says in verse 17 is, it's His creation. For the violence done to Lebanon, the devastation of its beasts by which you terrified them. As the Babylonians would come in, they would just devastate the land, burn their crops, destroy the cedars of Lebanon is what most people take this to mean here. The devastation of its cattle, just destroying, utterly slaughtering God's creation. I'm not going to give you an environmental sermon this morning. But we do have a responsibility. We do have a stewardship that we've been charged with. It's the first thing, one of the first things Adam was charged with. To rule over God's creation. God's creation is to express His glory. And how we deal with it, to some degree, deflects how we Hold and revere God's glory. If we give no thought to the creation, I think it tells, says something about our attitude towards God's glory. And I'm not talking just about here the inhuman part of God's creation. More important is the, is the human part of God's creation and how we treat one another. How we treat our fellow brothers and sisters, how we treat those who are in need. Chapter 1 of Habakkuk was decrying a lot of the evils that were befalling the widows and orphans, the foreigner, the foreigner and strangers. How we treat one another reflects on God. It reflects on the gospel. Jesus says, They will know you are my disciples by your love. If we don't love one another and we are busy taking advantage of one another, humiliating one another, what does that say about our God and his gospel? I don't think it portrays a very accurate picture of our God. It doesn't portray what the gospel was designed to do, which is to transform sinful people into those who are righteous 
and who love the way God loves. This last section, verse 19. Woe to him who says to a piece of wood, Awake! Arise! Give me some good piece of advice. Tell me what I should do in this decision. Now today we think, man, how stupid is that? We would never succumb to idolatry. Never. We're too sophisticated for that. Are we? I remember a couple of years ago when we were looking for our house. We went to several, I'm assuming they were some kind of Asian households that had, uh, I don't know, it was little Buddhist shrines in them with fruit set before them as an offering. 21st century America in North Dallas, we're still worshiping idols. It was a really weird feeling walking in there. Really weird feeling. But are there other idols that we worship? That we trust? That we depend on? That we look to for security and for answers? I think about a lot of the retirement plans. The boomers are the, probably the largest segment of our population and they've got all the money. That's what you see dominating commercials and advertising. Put your money here. Put your money in this man-made plan and you'll be set. Is that not a form of idolatry? You don't hear it advertised. Trust God for your future. We have sophisticated idolatry in our country. And we have not gone to just the lifeless, the dumb, silent pieces of wood and stone anymore. No. We have gone to something that is living and alive. We've gone to man. Man is the end all and be all. We know what is best. Idolatry. Faith sees beyond all these things and looks to God. And Habakkuk here is contrasting, ending this chapter in these last few verses, by contrasting not only the the idea of idolatry, but he contrasts the two gods, as it were. One with a, with a lowercase g and the one true and living God. Verse 20. But the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before Him. And you see, before this, that Habakkuk is saying the idol is silent. There is no breath in the idol. 
And the earth is the one who's speaking. And he reverses that and says, no, the proper order is that God is the source of life. He's the source of wisdom. He's the one who will speak. And we are to be silent before him. Silent before God. Submission is what is being pictured here. Habakkuk is telling the faithful in Israel, God will judge. It might not always be in the way that we thought he was going to judge, but he will deal with sin. Our role is to be faithful, submitting ourselves to God and his plan. Submitting to his ways and his timing. Not our own. I like reading Calvin. Because Calvin always takes us back to the Word of God. There was no higher authority for Calvin than the Word of God. And if we're going to be faithful believers, we need to place ourselves under the Word of God as well. Let me just give you a couple things that Calvin reminds us of. The God of Israel is indeed the Creator of heaven and earth, making Himself known by His law, revealing Himself to men, so that His majesty is not hidden. We need to remember that when we speak of God, we would be lost unless He comes to us and explain Himself to us. For the capacity of our understanding is not so great that it can penetrate above the heavens. Hence, the majesty of God is in itself incomprehensible to us, except He makes Himself known by His works and His Word. If we're going to be righteous and live by faith, here is our rule of faith. We need to submit ourselves to the Word of God and everything that it teaches us about Him. Habakkuk is about teaching us to to wait on God's sovereign wisdom, God's sovereign tithing that is excellent and perfect. And what Habakkuk 2, I think, specifically is challenging us to is to live by faith, not chasing our desires, not chasing the vain things of this world, not seeking security and stability and finances, not seeking ultimate protection in medical insurance, but turning to God for all of these things, trusting in Him alone is what we are called to do. And it is hard. It is hard to leave these things behind. We are so engrossed in them in our world. We need to remember 
that if we're going to live by faith, I have to come to God day by day asking for his strength to enable me to do so. Asking for him to pour out his spirit in my life to enable me to live righteously. To live in a way that displays the character of God. To not chase after these things, but to spend my time caring for the orphan and the widow. To spend my time taking the message of the gospel to those who need it. Trusting that God will take care of the details. He knows what we need. Will we trust that? Will we trust that he will provide what we need financially? Will we trust that he will take care of our medical circumstances? Will he provide safety for our children as they live in this world? Will we trust him for all of these things? So that we can be about the work that we are called to do. Spreading his glory through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning. We just thank you and praise you. That you have given us your word. We thank you that you have come to us. That you have stooped down to reveal yourself to us and explain yourself to us in your word. We can look at your mighty acts that you have done throughout history. The way you have performed in miraculous ways to preserve your people. We look at the way that you acted most miraculously. In providing a savior for mankind. We thank you that you have given us Jesus Christ. The God man. In whom there was no sin. Who lived a perfect life of faith. Who was always about the work of his father. Obedient in every respect. An obedience that took him to death on the cross. So that he might pay the price for our sin. So that we might be made alive to you. So that we might be made righteous. Not because of anything good in us. But because we have the righteousness of Jesus Christ given to us. Through faith. Father we thank you. For all of these things. We ask that your spirit would move in us. To help us live lives of faith, producing the fruits of righteousness in our lives. That we would be ambassadors and illustrations of the gospel being lived out in our lives. And that men would see our good works and give all the glory to you. We ask these things this morning in Jesus' name. And by the power of your spirit. Amen.